Hey, Scott, how you doing? I'm great, Lisa. How are you doing? Good. So first things first, how are your, is your family well? You're well? Everybody that you know and love, everybody's staying healthy? Uh, they are. Uh, I actually think I had this back uh, in February, to be honest with you. Um, you know, obviously I couldn't get tested, but you know, when you look at the symptoms, um, and it was a very mild case, it was nothing like what we're tending to read about in the news media. Um, and so, uh, I've actually, you know, been out a, a couple of times every week. And, uh, um, so I, it's been interesting, you know, I, I think the whole situation has been very interesting for our country. Why don't you tell everybody where you live and what your background is so that we understand why this conversation today is something that we should pay attention to? Sure. Um, I've been in the tennis industry uh, my entire career. Uh, I'm currently the director of the tennis management program at Methodist University, uh, the PTM program there. We're uh, uh, currently the largest and, and been around, I guess, about 30, 40 years now. Uh, and producing college students to get ready to go into the tennis industry. Uh, part of that, I've been a college coach uh, for three different colleges, and I've de uh, developed junior tennis players uh, as well. Uh, I've actually had 71 junior tennis players go on to play college tennis. Uh, I've been real fortunate to um, have some great kids that I've been able to be a part of their life and their development. So um, really enjoy the, the tennis industry and, and just glad to be a part of it. And you've been an official, too, at junior events. I have. I've been a referee for junior tournaments for, I guess, about 25 years now uh, at a lot of tournaments around North Carolina. I actually did the USTA National Boys 12s clay courts down in Lake Nona uh, a few years ago as well. So. so you have a variety of experiences in the tennis industry, in the tennis world. You continue to stay involved in tennis. Last year, we did a podcast together, and... Then I guess, Gary. I, yeah, and a few days ago, you posted something on Facebook that caught my attention, and I shared it in the Parenting Aces group where we have more interaction than we do on, on this page, and it kind of led to us, you and I, exchanging a couple messages and figuring out that we needed to do this today and have this conversation because there's a lot going on with college tennis, and a lot of families, for them, college tennis is the carrot. You know, it's it's the thing it that, that we all want for our children and, and for a lot of our kids, it's the realistic goal. You know, they may say they want to be number one in the world and emulate their favorite pro player, but for most kids, college tennis is an achievable goal. It is, and, and a lot of people don't realize that playing college tennis is a very achievable goal. Uh, matter of fact, there's positions every year that do go unfilled, uh, uh, unfilled, where uh, coaches wish they had players and they don't. And I think that what we have developed as college tennis, is, as we all know it over the last 15 years, 20 years, uh, is definitely about the change. Um, it, it, you know, one of the articles that uh, you're referring to that I was talking about um, referenced how college tennis may be a, amongst the sports that disappears from college or from colleges. Uh, how the athletic departments um, are, are focused on, you know, the loss of revenue and looking to cut expenses. Uh, matter of fact, I think it was about a week ago. 
the uh, several of the uh, commissioners of several Division One conferences and their athletic directors petitioned the NCAA to drop the minimum of 16 sports uh, as a requirement to be NCAA Division One, which means that they're really looking at you know, how do we reduce expenses? You know, they just lost right. as a group right. $375, $375 million with the NCAA spring basketball tournament. And who knows what's going to happen to, you know, a football camp play this fall. And unfortunately, uh, in college tennis, we're, we're a non-revenue sport, you know, uh, such as baseball or soccer or, uh, or volleyball. And we're going to have to find ways to show that we're relevant. Uh, and, I, and I'm afraid it's about to change uh, significantly. Well, let's point out that the NCAA did decide not to cut the number of yes. school, a uh, number of sports for D1 status. So that was good news. Um, we think, <laughs> we hope, I mean, it's got to be right. I think it's great news uh, that they denied that. Um, however, I still think it's, there's going to be changes coming down the pipe. Uh, Dan Beebe, who used to be the commissioner of the uh, Pac-12, uh, presented um, an idea that a lot of that's, I guess, taking some hold in uh, college circles is that we have revenue sports and we have non-revenue sports. And he went so far as to say that we quit giving scholarships to the non-revenue sports, which obviously, just as you said, college tennis is the carrot for our junior tennis players and their families. That's a significant change. And I, I don't think it will come to that, but it would not surprise me if we do have some changes over the next few years, trying to find a way to mitigate the cost of non-revenue sports while continuing to enhance the, you know, for lack of a better word, professional sports such as basketball and football that do generate the millions of dollars uh, for the colleges and universities so they can then have the non-revenue sports. So I do think changes are coming. Now, whether that's in the form of maybe there's, you know, a conference for football and basketball and then a totally separate, more local conference for um, uh, for the non-revenue sports or, you know, finding other ways to um, to manage that. You know, a lot of times with small Division One schools, they only have a roster of six or eight students. And when you look mm -hmm. at the Division Two schools and Division Three schools, which use college athletics to drive enrollment, you know, you'll see 12 or 15 or in our case at Methodist being division three, you know, we have 26 guys and 18 females on our uh, men's and women's team. Really? We do. Yeah. And that's because of the tennis management program. And, and like most small schools, we use athletics to drive enrollment. So I, I think we may see some of that um, trickle up, so to say, into the small division one schools. Interesting. Well, and for those that aren't familiar with the different divisions in college tennis, and um, I don't know the background of everybody watching this right now. So at Division One, you can offer athletic scholarships for tennis. It's um, four and a half on the men's side and eight on the women's side for a fully funded program. Not all division one college tennis programs are fully funded. So um, that's the maximum division two can also offer college tennis scholarships. Division three cannot offer athletic scholarships, but they do offer academic scholarship money. And oftentimes the money that a, student athlete can get 
from a Division III school at, is as much, if not more, than they would have received at a Division I program. Um, NAIA, I, I'm not as up to speed on NAIA and junior colleges. Um, they do not fall under the NCAA guidelines. They are outside of that. And um, so, sorry, Marcus is just making a comment on it. Yeah, let me just read that. Rumors are that they are going to have an appeal meeting next month for Division One reductions and plans for universities to show their losses on the books and projected losses if they do not get the redu reduction. Interesting. Um, I mean, I think schools are scrambling right now and they're trying to figure out how to stay in business. Well, and, and, and it's interesting that you say that because, you know, there's so many converging factors and you know, you can't just use this as a silver bullet. There's no one silver bullet that got us to where we are, and there's not a silver bullet that's going to get us out of this. Uh, when you look at colleges and universities, there's several of them closing down around the country right now just because the number of high school seniors that are even available to go to college has been dropping for about, I think it's four or five years now, and will continue at least through 2025. Uh, where the number of high school seniors going to college will be reduced significantly. And when you act, also factor in the cost of a college education and people weighing whether, I, you know, is it worth taking on the student loans to go get a college education or should I just try to do something else, that's going to have an effect on it. Um, and if you also look at restaurants and, and you know, food and, and beverage establishments around our country, they're the largest employer in our country, if I'm not mistaken. It's somewhere in the top three or four in our country, from what I read. Well, a lot of those who are not going to college were taking jobs in that industry. So if that industry now is going to have, um, you know, be decimated, let's say, for lack of a better word, of what's going on with our country with the, the virus, then maybe that will mitigate some of that. But it, it's very interesting to see all the different confluence of factors coming in and how that's going to affect not just those that are going to colleges and whether colleges stay afloat or don't stay afloat, uh, but also college tennis programs. Um, you know, and one of the things, as you mentioned, the different levels, uh, one of the things that started happening, uh, I guess it was in the 80s and early 90s, you had a lot of NAI schools who transitioned to becoming NCAA Division II. And when they became NCAA Division II, they started using athletic programs to drive the enrollment. And what a lot of people don't understand is that it's something we call the discount rate. When a non-student athlete comes to a university, typically the discount rate for that, for that student is around 25 to 35%. And the discount rate is the amount of institutional aid given to that student. So if a college costs $40,000 and the discount rate is 25%, then that means that that student is really only paying $30,000 because 10,000 of that is coming from institutional. Uh, and I don't mean loans or, or Pell Grants or things like that, I'm talking about institutional aid. When you look at a student athlete, that discount rate jumps typically to somewhere between 65 and almost 80%. So when you look at a school, say like a Brevard College in Brevard, North Carolina, which was NCAA Division II, and of their 450, 500 students, 430 something of them are student athletes, they're paying almost for those students to go there. So there's no net amount for that school to stay afloat and paying their bills. And so when you talk about small schools adding sports, they're trying to add sports to bring in the non-student athletes. 
that is what helps an institution or a university stay afloat. And so when you put that in combined with everything else, there's going to be a lot of small colleges and universities around the country that are struggling. Um, and just forget about athletics. They're just going to be struggling in general. Wow. Well, Marcus just clarified too about JUCO. He says they don't follow a rule program. And he says um, where he is, they have up to 11 male scholarships for the community college team that's funded by a family endowment. So, um, so there you go. Uh, they're not reliant on the institution to provide that money necessarily. But Scott, what you're saying, I mean, that's really scary that, you know, or maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's like everything else that things have gotten so out of control with college tuitions. They were continuing to just escalate year by year by year, right. so much so that a lot of schools were offering students a way to lock their tuition for the four years or five years that they were going to be there um, so that they weren't subject to those increases each year. So maybe this is an opportunity for everybody to reset. Certainly we need that reset in junior tennis and junior competition with all the travel and the expense around developing junior tennis players. Maybe that same uh, kind of mindset is going to infiltrate other businesses and institutions like our universities. I agree. I mean, I think we were already discussing this a year ago in colleges and universities that, um, you know, the schools who are not being efficient and are struggling. Uh, there's another school here in North Carolina, Montreat uh, uh, College in Asheville, uh, that was literally close to shutting down till a donor gave them $3 million to stay open a couple of years ago. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of universities that, never mind the athletic side of it, they are going to struggle to stay afloat. And I, it would not surprise me for us to see in the small division one schools, some of what's been happening at the smaller schools, the division two schools and the division three schools where, you know, athletic directors are, you need a roster of 12 or 15. So that way we can justify your program staying afloat. Uh, a lot of times coaches, you know, myself being a college coach, you, you know, that's a lot of people to deal with, with a practice or in trying to manage it and trying to give equal time to everybody. So, you know, I think it's definitely going to change what's going on uh, with college athletics and especially with, in regards to tennis. Uh, when I was coaching at Queens University in Charlotte, uh, I had a roster of 12 uh, players, which is what we were looking for. You know, the college actually wanted me to have, you know, I think it was 14 or 15. Uh, and of course, when you're dealing with that many players, it, it, it's difficult as a coach. Uh, it's difficult to give everybody the, uh, the appropriate amount of attention. Right. Diane's asking, when you have those big rosters, how many actually travel with the team? Sure. Uh, for example, when I was at Queens, we actually had a travel roster of seven or eight. Um, and then what we would do is because we were limited to 25 dates, uh, we would actually schedule two a days a lot of times and play two different teams on the same day. So that way we were able to get everybody, um, you know, matches. You know, it wasn't like somebody would not play, you know, and that's one of the things we're actually dealing with at Methodist with 28 guys, uh, or I'm sorry, 26 guys and 18 uh, uh, girls on the team, females on the team, you know, not everybody's getting to play. And we only have 20 dates at the NCAA Division Three level. So we're actually getting ready to restart our club team with the tennis on campus for USTA 
and uh, and other things so that we can get them matches and get them play opportunities. Right, right. I mean, I I don't know. This whole thing is, you know, I have such mixed feelings because, like I said, on the one hand, we really need some some significant changes in how tennis is structured and. Um, you know, the whole issue of not awarding scholarships to the Americans, you know, but, um, you know, having too, too many and that too many is relative international players on rosters and, you know, the American players not feeling like they have equal opportunity or whatever. I, I don't know how I feel about all of that, really. Um I've, I've kind of changed my views over the years as I watch my son go through his college tennis experience, but I, I just feel like the expense of junior development coupled with the expense of a college education, whether or not you have a college athletic scholarship to play tennis has just gotten to be so outrageous. And I'm not sure that, the um, the value is necessarily still there for for most families. I agree with you, uh, and I think it's a decision that each family has to decide what they're looking for. Um, you know, junior tennis is so tough, and I, I think some of the changes that are being made by USTA with now the Net Generation Tour, in addition to the seven national levels, I, I think that's going to help. I think it's going to give some for lack of a better word, some realism uh, to parents and players about where they really truly fit. Uh, I'll never forget, you know, having run junior tournaments. I was at a tournament a few years ago. There was a, a boy in the 14 and unders who's talking about playing on the pro tour. And I'm like, okay, you're 42 in North Carolina in the rankings. And you're talking about playing on the pro tour. Now I'm not, trust me, I am not someone to crush somebody's dreams and, and, you know, God bless him if he can do what it takes to get there uh, and, and do that. But you also have to understand the price that goes with that. You know, I've always said that a goal is a dream that you're willing to pay the price for. Uh, if you're not willing to pay the price for it, it's, it's just a dream. And I think that there's a lot of people in junior tennis who are dreaming. Uh, I was very fortunate to work with Ty Kwiatkowski for seven years. And, you know, here's a kid that's, you know, top 10 in the country in the 12s as a 10 year old. And then he's, you know, the number one blue chip recruit. He wins the NCAA division one title um, uh, in singles and, you know, struggling to make it on tour. And, you know, it's so hard to make that. And, and so I think with junior tennis, parents and players are going to have to decide what's best for them. Uh, I, just to give you an example, one girl I coached, she didn't have the resources to play the national level. Uh, when Ty was playing, he was spending thirty five, forty thousand a year just on travel and playing tournaments in a given year. Uh, when he was in twelve and fourteen, uh, this girl, Kirsten Ward, is her name. Um, her family didn't have the money for that, and so and when she was in twelve and under, she played a few nationals to see how she did. She got the top one hundred, and then she made a conscious decision to only play North Carolina tournaments in higher age divisions until she could do that in the 18s. And then when she was 15, she was actually top 15 in the South and, you know, was able to in the 18s and was able to start playing at that level again. Um, and it saved them obviously tens of thousands of dollars through the years because she just couldn't afford to do it. So I, I yeah. think every family's yeah. got to decide that. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a huge financial commitment. We've known that for a long time. Um, the college carrot has become further and further away to more and more difficult to reach. Uh, if you do reach it, it's not as significant on the male side for females. You know, if they get the scholarship in D1, it is a full scholarship, but there's still costs involved with attending college. Even if you have a full ride, um, you know, there's still costs to having your child go to college, especially if they go somewhere out of state or out of driving range. So, I mean, it's it's a tough call. I'm just sorry. I'm distracted because we have a lot of comments coming in. Yes, we do. Mark and, and, and Marcus both are, are making some great comments. Yeah. Uh, and and, and my also, question would, I'm oh, sorry, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was going to say one of the things is is this whole question of, the role of high school tennis in all of this and could high school tennis play a bigger role? And I know USTA has been talking about that for a, a very, very long time, but I haven't really seen uh, some hardcore changes happening at the high school tennis level in terms of opening it up and, and inviting those players to participate. Though I know Lou Brewer, when I interviewed him, talked about that was one of the goals of this new uh, seven level system that USDA is going to implement beginning in January, 2021 was to have a place for high school players to kind of jump on board the, the junior comp train, so to speak. And right. I know TR has done a lot of work around opening up competition for kids who were traditionally just playing high school tennis, but have decided they want to kind of dip their toe in the more um, individual tournament kind of field. And so UTR has kind of stepped up and, and filled that gap. Um, Sorry, I'm, I'm just looking at these comments. Sure. Are coming. Thank you all so much for engaging with us. Um, but well, but Scott, I interrupted you. So go ahead. No, I, the, you know, you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, there's this huge cost with junior tennis. And I don't think it has to be, you know, and, and I think the thing that has happened over the years, as I said, it's not um, any one thing that has led us to where we are. I think part of it is, is college tennis has led us to where we are. Uh, part of it is, you know, the enrollment driven use of athletics, especially at small schools. And, and then, you know, the the financial drive of the larger Division One schools with football. But it's also in junior tennis as well. I mean, there is a tennis academy on every block. Uh, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry has their name on a tennis academy now. That is and, true. <laughs> yeah. And, and that used to not be the case. You used to have players who did play uh, high school tennis who also played tournaments and didn't spend $50,000 a year to get a college scholarship. I don't think it's necessarily a requirement. I think we have made it a requirement and a lot of us in the industry have built businesses off of this model. And, you know, is it going to be the end of that business model? I don't know. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think what will actually drive that as anything is supply and demand. And, you know, I think we I think the parents are going to be probably a little more cautious and a little more educated going forward um, as to, wow, do I really need to spend, you know, ten thousand dollars or fifteen thousand dollars a year on my kids tennis and hope for a return? So I, I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. Uh, but I think it's going to depend on what happens with college tennis as, as the driving force for that. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're coming about high school. 
I think one of the things that makes it very difficult for USTA or, or any national organization um, to have an effect on high school is that high school tennis is treated differently in every state. Um, you know, for some sure. play spring, some play fall. Some states have co-ed teams. So I, I think it's different in every state. And that makes it very difficult. It does. And, you know, it's so funny because um, I was just interviewed for another platform. And one of the questions was about my own tennis experience coming up. So I had to sit down and kind of think about, you know, my tennis development. I was not very good. But in eighth grade, I was in a private school for um, second through eighth grade. And as a private school, we the eighth graders had an opportunity to play on the varsity high school tennis team and so i was on that varsity team and my doubles partner and i my doubles partner was also an eighth grader um, we actually won the state doubles high school championship that year as eighth graders and uh yeah it was awesome i i was terrible it was totally my partner carried the the duo, but, um, but what was, so I'm sure you did your, I'm sure you held your own. <laughs> well, what was interesting is that I get to Georgia and I have a kid who plays tennis and we look at what high school tennis was like in Georgia. They don't have an individual tournament in Georgia, right. only team. And so it was a, he didn't have that opportunity to win a state championship as an individual, you know, the team won his senior year of high school, which was a really cool way to culminate his junior tennis. But, you know, the kids don't have the opportunity to compete as individuals in Georgia. Now, every state's different. So it's, you know, it's a difficult situation, but that's one of the highlights of my junior tennis is winning that state high school tournament. Absolutely. And, and you know, and that's the thing I, I think we get away from is that everybody's trying to take the same path to get there. And there's so many different ways to get there. There's so many different paths to enjoying your junior tennis. And whether that's ending up playing at the division one level, the division three level, you know, you, you listen, uh, having been around tournaments, you see so many kids and or their parents. I'll, I'll never forget. I was at a uh, North Carolina level five, which is a novice tournament a couple of years ago. And this 10 and under boy is playing his first tournament ever. And his dad's running around talking about him being a future U.S. Open champion. And again, I don't want to quash anybody's dreams, but I'm like, you know, I looked at the dad. I was like, hey, let's just play the first match. Let's get this going. And, you know, when you look at the number of players who make it to the pro tour, and when I say make it, I'm talking about that they get to, you know, let's say top 200 or top 300, uh, where they're really not making a living. They're not making it. You know, they're not the Djokovic, and that's a whole other discussion we can all get into. But, you know, it is such a low percentage, and people just don't realize that. Even being able to play at a Division One school on a, you know, I, I'm not going to say a full ride, but let's just say, you know, the maximum scholarship you can get, because we all know that on the guy side uh, with Title Nine, they're not getting full rides, um, or very few. It, it, it's so hard to get there. And, and there's, you know, I've also seen where it's not, again, it's not always one path. Everybody wants to make it one path, but it's not. Right. And, right. you know, I, I, even again, within I the same it. family, even yeah, within the absolutely. same family. Right. Absolutely. And, and to me, I, I've, you know, one of the things I've said in tennis, I feel like we do an, an awful job of parent education. 
And honestly, before your website came along and, and your group, parents, they were just learning from each other and they still do, you know, whatever Susie's doing. Okay. Well, we're going to do what Susie's doing. Mm -hmm. Well, that may not be the best path for you, but that's what they're doing. And, you know, and, and it's the easiest way is to go spend money. You know, you can spend money and go play 14,000 tournaments and, you know, travel wherever. And, but that's not the best way. And it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Well, I think, you know, one of the, the good things coming out of this shutdown, and let me just say that tennis in some areas around the country is reopening. So there are areas that are going to, we're going to start to see competitions. I mean, we're already seeing it. I'm getting text messages all the time from people opening up and offering competition opportunities. Um, I, I have my own feelings about that, that if you want to follow me personally, you'll, you can read them. But um, I think this has provided us a real opportunity to have these conversations and reformulate our message about why tennis is so great as a community. You know, we can, as, as a tennis community, a global tennis community, reformulate that message to stress the the lifelong aspects and lifelong benefits that kids gain from playing this sport. It's not just about winning championships. It's not just about getting scholarships. It's not just about, you know, winning Wimbledon. It needs to be about the life lessons and the opportunities and the relationships that you can form as a result of participating in an individual sport where it's you out there laying it all on the line or you and a partner out there laying it all on the line and taking personal responsibility for things like that. So I think it's going to be, um, it's going to be very interesting to see if that messaging is adjusted as we start to roll things back out. For me personally, uh, through Parenting Aces, through this platform, I have tried over the eight and a half years that I've been doing this to talk a lot about relationships and life lessons and, you know, picking coaches that stress character and those types of things. Um, sometimes I feel like it falls on deaf ears, but I'm going to keep saying what I, what I'm saying, because for me, that's what keeps me involved in the sport. It's the relationships, it's the life lessons. And I've shared, you know, numerous times now about my son's experience interviewing for his first job. And the fact that when he was sitting in job interviews, pretty much the entire interview centered around the fact that he had played a college sport. It wasn't mm -hmm. around, you know, anything else. It wasn't about other job experiences or hobbies or anything like that. The interviewers were intrigued by the fact that he had competed, had uh, committed to playing a sport at a high level. And, you know, I think that speaks volumes about the value of putting your your kids in this sport. And Absolutely. I think we need we need to start stressing that even more. And, and I, you know, in, in my opinion, as I said, I think this is it's on many levels. I think the parents need to do more research. They need to make better decisions for their kids. 
Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was at a tournament uh, about a year ago, and there was a tenant under match on clay courts on the orange court with the orange balls in front of me. And, you know, the whole purpose of the red, orange, green is so that kids who are 10 and under can actually play the game as though they're, you know, 18 and under. And yet what's happening is they're moonballing. And what's ironic is, I, and I know these parents from seeing them at different tournaments, but I don't know them, know them. And they're over there just complaining about the moonballing and just right around. So I walked over and for shock effect, I looked at them and said, well, it's your fault. And I walked away. And in about five minutes, a couple of the parents fall down and go, well, wait a minute, what do you mean it's our fault? This is why and, I love you, Scott. <laughs> and, and they're like, what do you mean it's our fault? And I said, look, I said, I know you guys are in Charlotte. And I said, I know you guys just switched coaches about three weeks ago. And I said, I know from my experience having, you know, developed the players I've developed through the years playing at those levels, it takes me two years to get a player, whether they're 10 or 15, from point A to top 15, top 20 in North Carolina, where they're now getting towards the higher level, you know, where they can play the game. And I said, but you won't give the coach that opportunity for two years, because if your kid's not winning in 40 days, you're taking them to the next coach down the line. And I said, so you have got to find somebody you believe in, trust, and give them the opportunity. And you know what? Your kid's path is going to be different than somewhere else. You know, the 71 I've had go play college tennis, I've had, you know, I think it's about 20% of them use a one-handed backhand. I've had several of them use two-handed backhands. You know, you do, do, as a coach, you have to mold the player and not just say, okay, well, we're going to do all this or do all that. You know, Harry Hotman, he was such a great inspiration to me and such a great coach because he took the player and what they brought to the game and made them the best they could. And not just, okay, well, there's only one way to, to skin the cat, so to say. And right. so I think parents have to do it. And I think we as coaches have to do it. We have got to educate our parents to know what they're dealing with. We're the professionals and they don't know. They don't understand. Um, I have a girl that I've worked with for the last two years. Uh, she's 13 years old, um, now 14. But at the time she was 13 years old and five foot 11 wow. and wow. tagged the ball. I mean, when you watch this girl hit on the court, you're like, okay, what country does she play for? What, you know, what college? <laughs> but I have not and will not push her to ever go play that level of tennis. She will probably end up playing at a very small D1, maybe a D2. Why? Because she'll never play the Tar Heel qualifier. That's their family vacation weekend. And so I know that her family is not committed to doing that junior route. Now she may, and that would be awesome if she ends up playing at a Chapel Hill one day or, you know, a, a power five program that's top 20 and maybe have a chance after that. But I'm not going to push that at a 13 or 14 year old because I know her family doesn't value what she would have to do to, to make that track. So I'm not, I'm not shortcoming her. I'm not, you know, treating her any different, but I also realized there's going to be some limitations for a while until she decides what she really wants to do. And I think we as coaches have to have to realize that and not just try to push everybody and only focus on the ones that quote unquote, make us famous. You know, the players are not here to make us famous. You know, we're here to, for them and we're here to make them better and reach their goals. They're not our goals. All of our days are done. You know, my plan days are long done. But, you know, we're here for them. They're not here for us. And, and so I think this predicament that we're in as an industry is that 
there's the college side of it with the division one tennis and, and the football and basketball revenue and what that's going to end up doing to the non-revenue sports. There's the uh, small colleges at division two, II, division three, NAI that, you know, just the demographics of what's going on with college age students and, and, you know, um, having the higher discounted rate student athletes driving the enrollment, which is going to put, a, it's really going to put the financial burden on a lot of schools. Uh, there was an article written in the Winston-Salem Journal last week about the transition of UNC Pembroke and Francis Marion from the Peach Belt, which is a very uh, heavily funded Division II conference to Conference Carolinas, uh, which actually I think has a scholarship limit still of about two uh, for men and for women. So it's very lightly funded athletics. You know, and he was saying it was because of COVID. It really wasn't because of COVID. It was the financial pressures those schools were feeling trying to compete in one of the toughest conferences in Division II for years. Um, but that's part of it. Part of it is the parents, you know, making better decisions for them and their families and not chasing points and not trying to, you know, well, you know, Johnny, I'm living through Johnny and Johnny's going to be the best dang tennis player, you know. You know, and part of that, I think, comes from the, you know, used to with media, we didn't know what happened around the country. You know, I remember when rankings were produced once a year on a sheet of paper that were mailed to you. Yep. And yep. that's the only time you knew where you stood. Otherwise, you just had to guess. And, you know, now it's like instant gratification. And I know where how somebody's rated in Washington State. And so, you know, and then you got the tennis pros who have made a business model. Some of them have made very profitable business models out of developing junior players and playing the system. And I'm not saying it's wrong. It's what you know, it's economics, but I'm hoping that the economics will change. And I'm hoping that, you know, what happens at the college level will change and bring us back, you know, and I'm starting to sound like the old geezer, the old grandpa now, you know, back to the old days. It's not really what I want, but I do want us to find an equilibrium somewhere from where that equilibrium has been for the last 10 years. Because uh, I think it's warped our perspective on our sport. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, agree. I agree. Scott, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. I'm getting a bit of echo in my ear. I'm not sure where it's coming from, so I hope y'all aren't hearing it. But um, I want to thank you so much for for coming on and engaging in this conversation. And um, I, for those of you that are watching and, and typing in the comments, thank you so much for engaging with us because it helped us kind of formulate our conversation today. And I really appreciate those comments. I want to just say a couple things. One, um, this conversation, we're going to upload it as our podcast this week. So in hopefully in the next hour or so, it will be available through all the podcast apps and whatever. Um, it's also the video portion will be available on our YouTube channel. So if you want to go back and watch it, you'll be able to do that. And um, I also want to urge uh, the parents that are watching, yesterday's USTA webinar was about how parents impact a child's tennis experience. And there was some really good information in that webinar, also some great adjunct uh, materials, some links that USTA provided for parents. And we have a link to that webinar on our COVID-19 resources page at parentingaces.com. So if you didn't get a chance to tune in yesterday, I hope you'll check that out. It was really, really good. Oh, it was Scott, a great webinar. Yeah. Scott, you have um, a former player of yours. It just I do. Matt Caldwell down in Anderson, South Carolina. I love that. Hi, Matt. Thank you for watching. And um, you had a great coach. You're a lucky guy. So... <laughs> 
he's a yeah. he's a great guy. He he really is a great guy. He was a great kid too. I uh, love that. Funny kid. <laughs> um, also, Lisa, just to let you know, something I'm working on. Um, yeah. You know, in addition to running the program at Methodist, I'm actually working on my doctorate uh, right now as well. Uh, but we're starting a website called TennisParentEd.com. Um, I love it. So that way we can hopefully get information out there uh, on different things. And, you know, things like I've been posting this last week and uh, and that you post all the time, whether it's about college tennis, junior tennis, you know, just trying to help them understand how to how to navigate the pathway uh, so they can make good decisions. So we'll have that up here in the next week or so. Fantastic. And we'll add a link to that on parentingaces.com as well. And, you know, Scott, anytime uh, you want to do this again, I am always here and always love talking with you. You have some great wisdom and insights to share with all of us. So thank you so much for doing it. Stay well. Everybody watching, please stay well. If tennis is reopened in your state, please go back with caution and Follow the CDC guidelines on how to be out there safely and uh, just everybody take care. And I'm looking forward to seeing all of you in person at a tournament. Who knows when, but hopefully soon. Well, Lisa, thank you for having me. And, and thank you to everybody who's been watching and the comments you've made. Uh, if there's anything I can do to help, please, you know, reach out, uh, Lisa, whether it's helping you guys out or anybody that's out there. Um, let me know. Be glad to help in any way I can. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Have a great day, everybody. Stay well. Thanks, Lisa.